Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. This November marks the 400th anniversary of one of the most overanalyzed meals since the last summer. I speak, of course, of the event later commemorated as the first Thanksgiving. Today's show is not about that, but it is about the often overlooked connections between the Plymouth colonists and the present state of Maine, a region that provided much needed trade revenue for the struggling group of people who were not called pilgrims. But what were these chronically mislabeled colonists doing in Maine, not to mention on Cape Cod? Why did they think they had a right to be there at all? And even if we grant they didn't have a first Thanksgiving in 1621, seek religious toleration, or even make much of an impression on anybody but the nearest Native Americans unlucky enough to meet them, what can their story tell us about 17th century colonization? Buckle up, because they definitely didn't have buckles on their hats. So no more buckles from this point on. Let's do this. My guest today is David Silverman, professor of history at George Washington University. He's the author of This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, as well as Thundersticks, a book on Native American history of firearm use, as well as several books on New England Native American history. David, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks for having me. David, today I was hoping you could shed some light on the interesting overlap between Plymouth Colony, home of the so-called pilgrims, and their their many dealings uh, in Maine in one way or another. Just to begin with, though, because I think many of our listeners, they're familiar, they've at least heard of the so-called pilgrims, but who were these people who founded Plymouth Colony uh, of Thanksgiving fame? They're a fringe religious denomination from England. They called themselves separatists because they had concluded that the Puritan effort to purify the Anglican church from within of its Catholic holdovers was futile. And therefore, if they wanted to maintain the integrity of of their own faith and most importantly to open their their own way to heaven, um, they needed to separate from this institution, which they considered to be inherently corrupt. And thus, uh, because they dissented from the state church of England, a church of which the the sovereign was the head, they had to leave the realm. Uh, Initially, they went to the Netherlands, um, which was carving out a niche for itself in in Western Europe as a refuge for religious dissenters from all over the Western part of the continent. And they lived there as a community for several years, but found that the economic conditions, the cultural conditions, and most importantly, the religious conditions uh, were not to their liking. Uh, There was an enormous amount of contention within the Dutch Reformed Church over the direction of that faith, and it was beginning to get violent in the streets. Moreover, 
it appeared that a Spanish invasion, another <laughs> Spanish invasion of the Netherlands uh, was imminent. All that combined with the fact that you know, these separatists were struggling to survive in the Netherlands and they weren't too keen on their, their children growing up uh, as monolingual Dutch speakers, they decided to make a, another go of it somewhere else. And they, you know, they searched around for opportunities in North America, which was beginning to open up as a space of colonialism for Western European companies and states. And, and they, for a while, they toyed with moving to Dutch claims around the mouth of the Hudson River, but ultimately struck a deal with the Virginia Company of London to settle within the, the patent area of, of that company. They ended up not, right? Where they landed, they realized they landed <laughs> outside of the boundaries uh, of this company claim, which thus begins the Plymouth colonists' sort of long adventure in kind of living outside the law for most of the existence of Plymouth Colony, which is something that uh, we can we can get into more. One of my favorite aspects of that of that history that I don't think gets enough coverage is just how much they did that was by English standards illegal. Um, well, that, that's exactly right. You know, and yeah. it, one of the interesting el- elements of them settling outside of the Virginia Company's patent is originally they're heading for the Hudson River. And it's an interesting counterfactual question to consider how the course of colonial North American history would have been different if the English rather than the Dutch had settled in this area. And, you know, I think what's especially ironic about that, that counterfactual is that we, American lore attributes the United States culture of religious liberty to the pilgrims who, let's be clear, didn't believe in religious liberty for people who dissented from their own, their own beliefs. Absolutely. Um, Whereas historians, as opposed to the public, associate the Dutch with religious liberty during the 17th century, and you know very much the Dutch New Netherland is one of the, along with Rhode Island, is one of the earliest examples of a an early modern society actually performing liberty of conscience. This is a really good point. Where I'm just thinking, if what became New York City had been a headquarters of separatism instead of the Dutch pluralism, New York City as we understand it, would have never come into being in that sense. There's just no way in terms of this cosmopolitan place of business and religious pluralism and and people who are quite honestly just too busy doing other things to to get too much into religious persecuting. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Just like what what if New York City had been instead sort of like what what, what Plymouth became? That's right. And it's one of it's one of the most exciting elements of studying the early 17th century is that so much is up for grabs that you know the the survival of these early colonies is very much in doubt indeed you know that up until the the 1620s the the history of colonization is a history of lost colonies rather than successful ones in in North America we could have very easily have been talking about Spanish Virginia or French Georgia or holding up Sagadahawk, Maine is, you know, the, right. the uh, you know, the first English colony. So, you know, there's, there's so much contingency as historians like to say it uh, during this period, it makes it an exciting time and place to study. Absolutely. So I think on this theme of, I, I guess, missed business opportunities for, for the, the separatists don't go to New York city. That's a good segue into some of their other 
fiduciary failures that shape the history of their colony and bring Maine into the picture to a certain degree. We should clarify. So the the Plymouth colony, these separatists, they failed to convince everybody in their congregation to join them when they finally got to what became New England. Uh, They didn't even get their pastor to join them, John Robinson. And my favorite fact is that most people called them Brownists after Richard Brown, but Richard Brown, the leader, the first leader of the separatists, he renounced them and they, he thought they were too extreme. He stepped away and yet they were still named after their original leader. Once they got to North America and once they managed to, you know, survive the first year or two, Plymouth had a longstanding problem paying the bills. Why was that? Why did the colony struggle financially for so long? Most colonies struggle financially mm. um, out, out, out of the gate. And there's lots of reasons for that. Among them is that they don't know how they're going to turn a profit. They have ideas about how they might, uh, but they don't know for sure. And, and here, I think it's important to establish, you know, the American mythos would have us believe that the impetus for the founding of Plymouth was a quest for religious liberty. There's an element of truth to that. You know, the separatists across the Atlantic because they wanted to be able to practice their own faith without interference. But we, we need to remember that Plymouth Colony, like all colonies, was fundamentally a business venture. Mm-hmm. And however the colonists themselves thought about this enterprise, their investors back in England expected a return on their investment or else they were going to pull the plug on this experiment. And you know, if, if these investors had stopped sending supplies, reinforcements, and providing political cover uh, for the colony, it would have failed very, very quickly. So you know, these English colonists at, at Plymouth have to figure out a way to pay back their investors for sponsoring the colony and they have to figure out a way for themselves to, to make a living. Now, you know, ideally, in the minds of most early colonists, they would discover some precious mineral, find gold, silver, diamonds, or the like. Right. And you know, all too often nowadays, we scoff at those dreams. But we need to remember that the Spanish had several times stumbled upon these indigenous empires that were laden in gold and silver in Central and, and South America. And, you know, when we think about explorers like Coronado or DeSoto uh, rambling through the interior of North America looking for riches, that's what they're looking for. And there's precedent for finding such things. And uh, we know, should hat tip later on to the Portuguese at the turn of the 18th century. They struck gold in Brazil. Exactly. So it, it, does, it did happen. It, it did happen. And, you know, the the all the futile searches were worth it when a real discovery of this sort was made. Um, at least it was worth it for, as far as Europeans were, were concerned. So, you know, in their most grandiose imagination, that's what, what they would find. They certainly knew already that New England had valuable resources in the form of fish. There'd been a century long thriving fishing enterprise in the Gulf of Maine and Newfoundland before the founding of Plymouth Colony. So they knew they could make money from from fish. If you could just clarify on that. So I know that you're referring primarily to cod. And I think to modern audiences, this might be a bit of a, a shocker that cod was in such high demand. So in the 15 and 1600s, why was cod such a booming, desirable product in, in Europe? 
you know, aside from the fact that it's delicious, we need to keep in mind that Catholics and most of Europe was Catholic had over a hundred meatless days on their calendar. And so, you know, if that Catholic population was observant, that meant there was an enormous amount of demand for fish during those meatless days of the religious calendar. Hence our association with Catholic countries like uh, Portugal and Italy with salt cod. That's an extension of this Atlantic fishery, which you know began in, in the North Atlantic around Newfoundland and began working its way down the, the Gulf of Maine and ultimately to, to southern New England as well. It was more valuable than any other American resource during the, the 16th century other than gold and silver. So, you know, this is this cod fishery represents enormous profits for those who can tap into it. You know, the problem for Plymouth colonists is none of them were fishermen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Fishing is a skilled trade. It's not an easy, you can't just pick it up and pursue it. So they had a, an awful lot to learn. You know, none, none of them were mariners. No, never mind fishermen. The, you know, they also knew that lumber and trees themselves as, as mass for naval vessels could be a potentially a lucrative enterprise for themselves. And not least of all, there were furs. And the emergence of the fishing trade in the North Atlantic overlapped significantly with the nascent fur trade as uh, some of these European fishermen began making contact with indigenous people on the coast and trading European wares for Native American furs. And furs like marten, fox, but especially beaver sold at enormous profits in Europe at this time for use as muffs, hats, um, fringe on robes, and, and the like. In their quest for furs and other sellable exports, Plymouth Colony had extensive dealings in Maine. And this might surprise modern audiences because Cape Cod and Maine are not exactly next door neighbors. So why is the history of Plymouth Colony so bound up with part of what's now the state of Maine? Well, we should think of the Gulf of Maine during the 17th and indeed even during the 16th century as the wild, wild east. You have Europeans from several different national backgrounds converging on this place to exploit it for all it's worth. And they're competing for fishing grounds. And they're competing for native business partners in, in the fur trade. Maine is an especially profitable area for the fur trade for a few different reasons. For one, it has numerous long navigable inland rivers, uh, something that, that southern New England lacked. So southern New England has lots of great bays and mm. coves. But other than the Connecticut River and to a lesser degree, the Merrimack River, it just didn't have a vast inland river system, at least on the scale of Maine, which is just, you know, uh, crisscrossed by one major river after another. And so, you know, what what those rivers represented was access to beaver hunting grounds. Furthermore, Maine had a large indigenous population that was active in hunting beaver among other terrestrial animals and so yeah I, I i think some of your listeners might not understand that the colonial fur trade did not involve europeans hunting terrestrial animals themselves 
hardly ever. The fur trade involves Europeans trading European goods to indigenous people in exchange for furs that the native people had harvested themselves. So any fur trade colony that you're talking about, whether it's Plymouth, Dutch New Netherland, New France, what have you, it's all premised on Native American labor. And so in Maine, the various Wabanaki peoples hunted extensively throughout that sector of North America and had plenty of furs available for trade. And then, you know, the third point is because of its northern climb, the quality of those furs was much higher than areas farther to the, to the south, um, even as close as, you know, Massachusetts or Connecticut. As one would expect, the pelts of beavers became thicker and more lustrous the colder the environment was. And so for, you know, for all of those reasons, aspiring Plymouth fur traders were attracted to Maine. And also, I think it, it bears emphasis that for so much, just like with Plymouth and so many other colonies, that for many European colonizers, the whole point of going to various places was, it was the, the Native American people living there. One of the models of the English settler colonial model that eventually desired to clear the land of indigenous residents was only one of a number of these different goals. And for many of these colonizers, the whole point of going anywhere was to do business with or convert the locals. The later desire for land without indigenous people on it was premised on the ability to make profits from growing export crops on the land. Well, right. you know, that that incentive did not exist at this point because there was no crop that was merchantable from southern New England at this point. Um, you know, in the in the Caribbean and later the uh, the mainland of North America, eventually Europeans are going to hit upon the export potential of sugar and tobacco, uh, rice, even even wheat. But they didn't know that yet. And uh, the farther north you went, the less possibility there was of, of hitting upon such a merchantable export crop. And so Native people and the products that they produced represented the best possibility of these colonies turning a profit. I, you know, I think we need, we need to remember, even in Spanish dominions, which the Spanish established with such you know legendary historic violence, the ultimate goal was not to exterminate native people it was to subjugate native people and and to you know to establish spanish rule over them and for some of these early english colonists uh, the spanish model is the only one they know right um, and it's and that is what they're aspiring to eventually you know the the relationship deteriorates significantly because native people don't share that vision whatsoever right um, but you know Ply plymouth colony is operating in that that kind of milieu at this point. Speaking of aspirations, I think this we should get into then by what right the Plymouth colony uh, believes that it, it can go to what is now the state of Maine and how it has a, a claim there to begin with. I think this is another aspect that modern audiences might be surprised by. What is the legal status of the Plymouth colony? just in terms of English law and in view of the, the English monarch in the 1620s and its formative it, years. It has no standing. <laughs> it has no legal right to exist. The separatists founded this colony outside of the chartered area of the Virginia Company, which had sponsored it. It was in a legal no man's land. 
And it devoted several years to trying to get some official recognition from the English government. And Plymouth was always operating under the, the threat of being dissolved by the English state or being absorbed by Massachusetts. It was which always, it eventually was in which it, which in it eventually 1692. was. Right. Yeah, that's right. They could see that fate coming almost as soon as as the Massachusetts Bay Colony begins in 1629 and attracts many more thousands of colonists uh, right out of the gate than Plymouth Colony ever would. Right. Um, so it it has no legal standing initially and then just tenuous legal standing uh, moving forward. Now, let's be clear here. You know, they say to to generalize is to be an idiot. So please forgive me for generalizing here. But, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that during the 17th century, European colonists did not feel particularly restrained by international law or even the law of their own particular kingdoms. Unless someone made someone from overseas or an agent of a sovereign in North America made them abide by the law, they were going to search for profits wherever that wherever it took them, whether that was violating the charter rights of companies from their own kingdom or violating the claims of their foreign rivals or <laughs> violating the claims of their indigenous neighbors. Um, yes. This is a this is a really lawless, rough and tumble kind of environment. Now, before we continue, uh, if I can ask you to clarify, so you talked about charter rights, referring to a, a colonial charter. And I think, again, modern audiences, many people aren't actually clear on what that would be and what that would grant. And all colonies in, in the English empire had a charter eventually, or they, or they went belly up. So what exactly was a colonial charter that somebody that a colony like Plymouth would probably be trying to get? It's it's common for people in the general public or my my introductory students to use the phrase, well, the king of England created colony X, you know, Plymouth Colony. No, the crown has little to no involvement in the founding of colonies. Instead, what the crown would do, you know, through its various agents in government is grant a charter either to a company or to a particular individual, you know, basically a legal document permitting a company of stockholders or an individual or series of individuals known as proprietors to found a colony within a particular geographic zone claimed by the crown. You might ask, well, what right does the crown have to claim lands in North America? Well, you know, England, France, uh, Spain, and, and Portugal jousted with one another over whether their various explorations gave them exclusive rights to large stretches of, of American territory. You might ask, well, what? how does exploring a stretch of coast give uh, European sovereigns uh, these claims? Well, as self-proclaimed Christian civilized peoples, they deemed it their right and responsibility to bring other peoples of the world who they deemed savages and pagans to the true way. We now refer to that in short that notion in shorthand as the doctrine of discovery, that by supposedly discovering new worlds, which in fact were old worlds that human beings had discovered 
thousands right. of years before they had legal claims to these areas. So, you know, then the King of England or Queen of England uh, would grant a charter to these, uh, these uh, companies of stockholders or proprietors and give them the right both to establish these colonies and govern them in exchange for granting certain rights and concessions to the crown. And that that's what Plymouth is operating under. Uh, a, a, you know, the Virginia Company of London had a right to colonize a vast stretch of, of what's now uh, the eastern United States. And the Virginia Company, in turn, subcontracted to these separatists to found their own settlement in America. But again, the place that they actually founded Plymouth was outside the bounds of what the Virginia Company had granted to them. This is where I suppose the importance of filling out your paperwork to get your permission slips, you know, really comes into play. An instructive contrast would be Rhode Island for all of its reputation for kind of anarchy in the 17th century was really good about sending agents to England and maintaining a, a good standing with the crown and to, to get a charter. In contrast, Plymouth never really got its paperwork in and then got absorbed in the 1690s into Massachusetts Bay. And so people right, wonder why Rinky Dink Rhode Island survives, but Plymouth does not as an independent entity. It's a great question, especially given that um, yeah. Ma- Massachusetts had its eyes on <laughs> annexing Rhode Island throughout much of the 17th century. And it's uh, it really was legal maneuvering by Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, l- let me add uh, Rhode Island's alliance with uh, the quite powerful Narragansett people mm-hmm. um, that helped to fend off that threat. Yes. Also on this notion of the, the doctrine of discovery, we should add that not only is there this, this fiction, of course, that the Native Americans are, are legally able to just kind of be subjugated, there's the further fiction that early modern Europeans push, but that still has a lot of, of hold even today among non-Native people, this idea that indigenous people didn't really own property, especially in land, and that this fiction was very useful for European colonizers to arrive in and and argue that, well, they weren't really taking land from anybody because the locals didn't really own anything. And you'll hear that argument even from well-meaning non-Native people today, where they'll say things like, well, it's a shame what happened, but the Native Americans didn't really have property because they were so in tune with the land. You know, and they'll, they'll talk along those lines. Right. I, I think there's a conservative and a liberal version of this idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think the conservative one serves as an excuse for colonization, right? Native people yes. didn't have rights and therefore, you know, all, all the left wing belly aching about native dispossession is overkill. The liberal side of things is that, you know, native people didn't have a sense of ownership and lived communally like proto hippies, you know? Yes. Um, and, but you know, both perspectives are distortions of the truth. Uh, you know, it is certainly uh, true that, no Native American society with which I'm familiar operated a private property regime like those of, of Western Europe. Right. Um, nevertheless, Native American groups had very clear senses of where their territory began and where their territory ended. And if foreigners wanted to crisscross that land or settle in that land, well, yeah, they had to negotiate that with the native 
owners of that territory, the corporate groups that uh, that that own these territories. So they certainly had a sense of their land versus others land. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absence. I think sometimes this gets conflated by more modern folks of absence of capitalism doesn't mean an absence of property. And we should be clear that, well, historians, a lot of historians get really nervous once people start talking about when did capitalism start? And many people just don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to wait in there. Uh, that's a great way to get bogged down about the, the, when, uh, the when recognizable capitalism starts. Yeah, right. And it, let me add this, you know, it, it's certainly true um, that Native people didn't, didn't have written title to the land because sure. um, they didn't have alphabetic literacy. It is certainly true that their claims to the land was based on what we would call common law, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than rather than written law. And it, it is certainly true that for those groups that practice corn, bean, squash, horticulture, um, they only devoted a fraction of their territory to that intensive land use enterprise, and much of the rest of their uh, their territory was forest, right? Uh, hunting grounds uh, or, or the like. And Europeans used all of those features of, of Native American land use and claims to dismiss their claims to the land. Let, let us keep in mind that the, you know Euro- European elites and later colonial elites held vast tracts of unused land that they left, they left fallow waiting for its capital value to rise. And let us also keep in mind that, you know, the entire English legal tradition was based on common law, on unwritten common law. So, you know, these differences between European and Native American societies can be overstated sometimes and certainly were overstated by European colonists in their own self-interest. Absolutely. We should also add that for English people at this time, though, and it wasn't just in the Americas, what for English, specifically English colonists, the argument that the locals aren't using the land properly, we can do it better, was probably one of the most favored go-to arguments for English superiority. They certainly used it in, in Ireland and, and Scotland, and then they deployed it in the Americas as well, where rather than necessarily race, they would just say, well, you can look at the measure of a people based on their system of property uh, and their property law. Uh, Clearly, the English are at the top of of this ladder, and then the rest of the world falls into place below it. Right. And not just the law, it has to do with the people's use of the land. Yes. Um, And to the English, proper use of the land involves male plow agriculture, and fencing off one's claims versus the claims of, of another. You know, by contrast, indigenous farmers were women and they didn't use the plow. They didn't have livestock. <laughs> so yes. you know, that would, uh, plows would have been of little use to them. Instead, uh, they used hoes, uh, you know, hand tools. And they were quite successful at, at, at doing so. You know, they didn't need fences because, again, corporate groups held their land in common, and they didn't need to fence out livestock to keep them from damaging the crops. 
which really is the the main purpose of, of fences in in Europe. You know, the irony of all this is that uh, you know once the English uh, began colonizing in North America, they very quickly dispensed with the use of fences to fence in their own livestock, thereby allowing you know cattle, hogs, horses, and the like to trespass on Native American territory. And, yes, you know, have have plenty of hot lunches uh, in Native American cornfields. So you know. It, the the principles that galvanized colonists during this period are filled with endless hypocrisy and irony. Yes. And I suppose we should also add in there that the English put a huge emphasis on living in one place all year round. And people, whether in Ireland or in the Americas, who use their land but live in different parts of it different times of year they hold that in really low regard and the true the a plus grade for improving and using the land involves building a a house-like structure and then staying in it all year round Uh, and if you don't you're somehow doing it wrong and therefore the land's not fully yours right and you know the native american practice of moving seasonally from one resource to another, you know, planting grounds in the warm weather, fishing grounds in early spring, uh, hunting grounds in, in the cold weather, was anathema uh, to English colonists and, I, and, and especially anathema uh, to those of a religious bent like the people of Plymouth Colony, because, you know, that, that, that seasonal movement represented disorder. It meant that it was Im- impossible to worship at the same church day in and day out. It meant that it was uh, difficult for religious and governmental authorities, never mind just neighbors, uh, to monitor the behavior of people. It meant it was difficult to count people <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, and thus regulate them. And so you know, in all those, those respects, the Native American way of life to them was wild, as they would call it, and savage. Yes. I'm glad that you bring up this idea of disorder, because to me, that is the most fun and fascinating aspect of the Plymouth Colony, is that they were just never as organized or orderly as they claimed to be, or for that matter, that their descendants like to think. Like if we look at uh, a lot of these New England towns, they have multiple founding deeds or documents. And if you actually try and find out what the true origin deed of a given New England town is, you'll often fail because they can't tell you. And they're, they're making up this system of property law as they go, where there's this hodgepodge of colony grants, town grants, Native American land deeds. And then when these people are asked to sort of systematize them, they won't really do it. They won't commit to it because they can't. And then, of course, we have Plymouth Colony never filling out its paperwork and being absorbed because, well, they were just living in this legal limbo for 70 years. Right. And your, your listeners might be wondering, well, if the king through the company has granted you the land and that's the you know, the basis for title. Why do you need to buy Indian land in the first place? That's right. Um, right. And, you know, the, 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 there are two reasons when it comes to Plymouth Colony, though the practice was widely followed in other colonies that did have legitimate titles from, from the crown. You know, the fact of the matter is that Native people could not have cared less what reasons the English were inventing <laughs> yes. uh, to colonize their territory. And the English and the Dutch, for that matter, very quickly realized that if they wanted 
to survive um, in a, a country that was dominated by indigenous people, they'd have to negotiate their settlements with these people. And I think there's a tendency nowadays to dismiss all colonial land claims as nothing more than violent conquest. And there was certainly plenty of, of that. Yes. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is throughout much of, of New England and uh, New Netherland, uh, for that matter, many settlements were negotiated with indigenous people and indigenous people were paid for the right of Europeans to live in these places. It, it does not mean that indigenous people understood those bargains the same way Europeans did. Um, they most certainly did not. And I think that's demonstrably the case. Um, but these were negotiated arrangements in many cases. And those negotiated arrangements were captured from colonial perspectives in these land deeds these legal documents of, mm -hmm. of, land, of land claim, of which we have literally hundreds and hundreds involving indigenous people. One of these series of deeds did involve uh, the Plymouth colony and, and the Wabanaki, where the Plymouth fur traders ended up paying different Wabanakis for the privilege of just being in the Dawnland, which is what Maine was, the, the Wabanaki home before it was, it was colonized. And so a bunch of these different transactions between Plymouth folks and, uh, and the Wabanakis remained in existence and vaguely known. And then it was later generations uh, of British colonists who seized on some of these very kind of nebulous exchanges that were probably just uh, these Plymouth traders uh, paying Wabanaki leaders, again, for the privilege of trading and safety. And then, you know, a century later, this was turned into, oh, by the way, did you know that you you sold the land, this whole stretch of land, uh, uh, permission to, to be co to colonize here? Right. So, you know, when we when we think about these kinds of arrangements, I think all too often the public, certainly, certainly my students, have this automatic assumption that the European interpretation of these these bargains was the norm. Right. Let, let's keep in mind what's happening here. European colonists are moving into Native American territory. And so the assumption on Native people's part is that these guests are going to operate according to the rules of the hosts, just as if Wabnaki people had crossed the Atlantic in their machines and purchased land in England, they would be buying into English society, not buying the land from out of English society. Whereas the English colonists often contend that by virtue of purchasing Native American land, that land now falls under English jurisdiction. Native people don't have that assumption at all. Uh, right. They think that these people are buying into Native ways of doing things. And the native way of doing things is that you have a sachem or a chief, if you will, or santum, um, sagamore, as, as uh, they're often called in Maine, who is the representative of his community. And if foreigners want to settle in the area, hunt in the area, trade in the area, they have to pay tribute to that Sachem or Sagamore as the representative of his people. And that tri and tribute payments are not a one-time, you know, one and off deal. You pay me 
now and you now own this land forever. No, I mean, effectively, you have to pay rent <laughs> right? Regu- regularly. And that, you know, that rent or that tribute doesn't just represent a financial transaction. It's a recognition of the sovereignty of the people to whom it's being paid. It is also a symbol of, of alliance, effectively of, of friendship, if you, if you will, uh, between the groups. And it's part of a larger constellation of interactions, which includes mutual visiting, you know, ritual expressions of, of, of alliance. It involves each group helping to defend the other and feed the other in times of, of need. Um, it can sometimes involve uh, sex between the groups and you know, the bearing of, of children to bind them together. It's a much more complicated affair than just a discrete economic transaction. Yeah. So turning our attention to to that transaction in Maine between Plymouth and, and the Wabanakis, we know that the, the Plymouth colony had uh, a number of fur trading posts in what became the state of Maine during the, the 17th century. How lucrative were these trading posts for the Plymouth colony? And then when did they get out of this business? When did, uh, when did Plymouth sell off its, its claims to others? So it's fairly lucrative. Uh, it's certainly more lucrative than the enterprises that Plymouth had been pursuing in Southern New England up to that point, <laughs> which weren't very lucrative at all. The profits they make are enough to pay off their sponsors within a handful of years. And Plymouth Colony maintains its its fur trade in Maine, you know, for the better part of twenty five years, you know, into the into the 1650s. It's never lucrative on the scale of Dutch New Netherlands fur trade, which was uh, centered on on the Hudson River and the adjacent coast. Uh, Plymouth Colony's uh, fur trade is a fraction of the Dutch. Uh, never mind that of the French to the north. But, you know, on the modest scale of Plymouth Colony's population and economy, the fur trade profits coming in for Maine were what kept the place afloat, particularly during its its early years. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned there, given its population, how many people lived in the Plymouth Colony? I know that there were it was only up to 300 people by 1630 or so. And then. Didn't it it's peak at 7,000 in 1690 or so? That sounds right to me off, off the top of my head. I mean, it, here's the thing about Plymouth Colony. You know, for all of the uh, space that it occupies in, in the American imagination about the, the colonial era, it is always a marginal place. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, you know, it's important because it's the first English colony in New England that survived. It's important because King Philip's War, one of the you know most significant wars between colonists and indigenous people took place there. And it's important because much later generations of Americans invented this myth of the first Thanksgiving centered, uh, centered on the place. But as a, within its time and place, it's utterly unimportant. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's dwarfed, dwarfed by Massachusetts. Um, you know, uh, Plymouth Colony is even less important than, say, colonial Maryland or even even North Carolina. I, it You could take it out of the mix and hardly anyone would have noticed. I think proof of part of that, that is one of the, the really, truly big gulfs between professional historians and everybody else is that 
that realization and that that interest. And so I think it's telling that your book, uh, This Land is Their Land, is, is actually one of the only books by an academic historian about the Plymouth colony that's come out in the past, well, a couple decades, really. I mean, there's a handful, and if I'm leaving somebody out, please accept my apologies in advance. But by and large, most work on New England colonial history talks about you know, Massachusetts Bay or Native American history or something else, but there's very little attention given to Plymouth. Yeah, there's been a um, micro explosion, if you will, of, of books about Plymouth coinciding with the 2020 and 2021 right. uh, 400th anniversary of Plymouth Colony's founding and then the 400th anniversary of the so-called first Thanksgiving. So, you know, John Turner and Frank Bremer, among others, have written mm-hmm. some important new works on the colonists of Plymouth Colony. You know, but my contention is that What's most important about Plymouth, and to my mind, what's most interesting about Plymouth, is the relationship between the colony and indigenous people who were much more numerous and consequential than uh, the English themselves. Yeah, I think this is a this is an important point. Returning one last time to Plymouth in Maine, when does Plymouth Colony get out of Maine? Because they do sell off their claim. It's during the 1650s when the fur trade in southern New England is losing its profitability very quickly. There's a glut of beaver pelts in Europe and the market collapses. There's just oversupply um, because uh, you know, the, the North American trade is thriving in so many different sectors. Plymouth is just a small part of that. And the price of beaver is just dropping, thereby driving down the incentive uh, to maintain these these posts. This is a slight tangible. One of my favorite documentary finds was in the, the very early 18th century. I believe it was the Iroquois. They sent as a gift a beaver hat to the English monarch. And I'm not sure if it was Queen Anne or King George at this point, but they said, look, we know that beaver hats are going out of style in Europe. So we're hoping that you would wear this hat um, (laughs) and then it will come back. Uh, And I thought it was a really savvy move, you know, like they understood how things worked. And so I don't think it worked, but I thought the idea was nevertheless sound. Yeah. Eventually Um, they understand how things work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, one of the the aspects of of indigenous colonial relations that I love during this period is that when these market forces changed the terms of the exchange for Europeans, uh, Native people are credulous of, about it. You know, when, when Europeans say, well, you know, you're going to have to pay this much more in beaver pelts to obtain, you know, good X, uh, copper kettle, whatever, because uh, mm-hmm. of the price that, that pelts are fetching back in Europe. I, Native people say, you don't love us anymore, right? They, right. They, ex- they express this economic transaction in terms of the mutual affection or lack thereof between the various parties. They, they, don't, they don't want to hear about the laws of supply and demand. <laughs> right. right. This is, what they say is our relationship is premised on these material exchanges of this amount of this for this amount of this. And it's always been this way and should always remain this way if the relationship is to remain healthy. I found instances where I really like this, where sometimes the Wabanaki knew eventually that the the English really would argue that, well, 
we should, you know, this person should get to keep this land because they've been here for a long time. And so they knew that old deeds and old things really appealed to the English. So sometimes they would say, well, we've always done it this way. This has always been our custom, even when it, it's kind of clear that no, they're just making that argument, but they're very much, they're very much appealing to what they perceive as the, uh, the, the biases of their audience. Oh, for, for sure. You know, I think one of the greatest obstacles to understanding this period and later periods is the assumption that there is an unbridgeable cultural gulf between these people. Right. And that they, they're, they cannot understand one another because they're so hidebound, both parties, um, in their cultural ways. And, you know, there's, there's no question about it that some people were that way. But I am always struck by the number of examples of Native people who got to know colonial society very well, un- understood its values, language, religion, and so on, and vice versa of colonists who lived among native people, who learned their languages, their cultural ways, who produced children with them and understood what made them tick. And I, you know, I think we ignore the examples and the voices of, of such people uh, at our peril uh, when it comes to historical understanding. Agreed. I, I can't tell you how many times I've encountered students and members of the general public who offhandedly say, oh, you know, well, the, you know, the, the reason these these groups warred against each other uh, was uh, misunderstanding. No, no. no. <laughs> the, the, these conflicts, which stretch over centuries, were principal disagreements of, of two, two groups of people who had incompatible visions for the, the present and future. Yeah. Uh, and that certainly isn't necessarily a comforting or, or happy thought, but it is a more reality based one. And therefore, you know, important, important to get across. So while we're speaking reality, rather than do a a point by point debunking of the Thanksgiving myth, I thought maybe a more efficient and effective way to do this would be if you could give us an extremely brief, no frills narrative, because I know you've you've written about it and, and can talk about it at length. Can you give us your very brief version of the thing that happened that Americans are supposedly commemorating 400 years later at this Thanksgiving? Sure. It is certainly true that Wampanoag people and the Plymouth colonists of Plymouth Colony um, got together in the fall of 1621 And feasted together for three days. That is true. Hmm. It is true that feasting together was part of a larger political alliance between the groups. And that political alliance kept peace between the parties for the better part of 50 years. But that vision only takes us so far. Um, You know, the, the American myth is that friendly Indians welcomed the English to America so that the English could found the United States as an example of religious liberty, economic opportunity, democracy, and Christianity for the rest of the world. That's not what's going on in 1621. First off, the English have no vision whatsoever of founding the United States. They are hanging on by their fingernails and are just 
grateful that the nearby native people are not going to wipe them out right and will trade with them so that perhaps perhaps they can turn a profit in this colony the greatest distortion of the thanksgiving myth has to do with with the wampanoag people and what why they were doing what they were doing it is not because they were innately friendly not at all they had a hundred years of experience with European colonists leading up to this moment. They understood European colonists to have just incredible material resources at their disposal, but they also understood them to be incredibly violent, incredibly ruthless. Um, there had been a, a years-long pattern of European colonists kidnapping Native people and selling them into slavery overseas. So you might say, oh, you know, why would these Wampanoags make an alliance with these people? And the answer is intertribal politics. The Wampanoags had suffered a devastating epidemic disease between 1616 and 1619, undoubtedly introduced by Europeans. We don't know what it was. It was I, my guess is that it was smallpox, but it could have been something else. So you don't think it was the literal plague? The Black Plague, I mean? Uh, no, I don't. Um, okay. Okay. I, I, contemporaries called it a plague. Right which was a word they used just for any terrible disease, but no one identified it as the plague. Okay. And yeah, there's, there's plenty of room for disagreement on and debate over, over what this disease was. We'll never know. Mm -hmm. um, I think is still long and short of it. But the, the big point is that the majority of the Wampanoag population was wiped out by this disease, whereupon their Narragansett neighbors to the West began trying to subjugate them to the status of tributaries. And so the, the, cause of Wampanoag friendliness was not some kind of innate quality. It was that they were looking for allies to help fend off the Narragansett threat. So, you know, all of that context is missing from our popular understandings of this first Thanksgiving. And what, of course, is also missing is what happened after dessert was served, which is that, yeah, there was a tenuous peace between the Wampanoags and the English for the next 50 years, uh, but it was always teetering on the edge of war and then went to hell in a handbasket in 1675-76. Um, a shared meal really is an inadequate um, and fundamentally distorting symbol of Native colonial relations in this particular time and place, and certainly for colonial America overall. This was also, yeah, a military alliance against other indigenous nations, which they then acted on in the future years. So it's not just, oh, we're going to be friends, but then also the fact that this alliance was expected to take up arms against indigenous people who were hostile either to Plymouth or the Wampanoags. Right. And, and you know, those of us who study Native American history during the colonial era intensively eventually come to the realization that what is often stylized as Indian colonial relations cannot be understood as such. That as often as not, what's shaping Indian colonial relations is intertribal relations. And that absent that context, we can't really understand what's going on in relations between one particular tribe and a particular colony. So that is the so-called first Thanksgiving 400 years ago. I love the fact that these people didn't call themselves pilgrims, and this was a term cooked up really about 200 years ago. I remember I read one of the early Massachusetts writers about this in the late 18th century called them Plymouthians, which I think is <laughs> awkward, but better. All right. So uh, turning to our, our final 
questions here. What is something that you are working on that our audience should know about, or the something that you've recently come out with that our audience should be aware of? Well, having finished this book fairly recently on the history of the Wampanoag's Plymouth Colony and, and the Thanksgiving myth, I'm now turning uh, to a large-scale history of indigenous people in, in race in the colonies and the United States up to this present day. And it's my response to this racial reawakening of the last several years um, centered on the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, and I've been encouraged by the general public's renewed interest in the history of race making and racial inequality in American society. Um, But I've also been struck how not only the general public, but even most, most academics anachronistically frame this history as a story of white and black. And, you know, the fact of the matter is this, that for most of American history, and indeed I would contend up to the the present day, the history of race making in America has been fundamentally triangulated, that it has involved indigenous people, you know, the first people, the people who were the majority of the people for the 17th and the 18th century and who controlled most of the continent in the 19th century. They have been critical to notions of race in the United States. And so I think it's it's important to bring that history to the fore. I have a piece relating this current work that I'm doing on race to my previous project on, on Thanksgiving coming out in the Washington Post uh, next week. Great. What is something that somebody else has come out with that you'd like to recommend to our audience? Your audience, uh, you know, given the the topic of this this podcast, might be familiar with this book. I, I must say, I have uh, been really dazzled by Matthew Bahar's Storm of the Sea: Indians and Empires in in the Atlantic's Age of Sail, which uh, I believe came out in 2018 or thereabouts. This is a story about how Wabnaki people during the 17th century adopted European sailing technology. And in in some cases, uh, created effectively naval fleets um, that they used both against other indigenous people and Europeans. You know, sailing technology, which they appropriated partially through piracy, uh, partially through trade. And the amphibious threat of these Wabnaki raiders active in the Gulf of Maine actually has bearing on the story I told in this land is their land about the Wampanoags and, and Thanksgiving because Native people in, in Massachusetts Bay who, like the Wampanoags, have been devastated by these epidemic diseases, then found themselves subject to these amphibious raids from Wabanaki people from the Gulf of Maine. And so when the English uh, who founded Mass- the Massachusetts Bay Colony arrived, those Native people turned to them for alliance, much in the same way that the Wampanoags turned to the colonists of the Mayflower for assistance against the the Narragansetts. It's a really innovative and and original book, and I think deserves a wide readership. All right. Thanks so much, David Silverman. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been great talking with you. That's our show. Subscribe and leave a review on your listening platform so that Mainly History will be a much greater success than the slapdash failure of Plymouth Colony. 
Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Mainly History so that you can keep up with book and media recommendations from our guests and so that you don't miss out on future events. Coming soon, our holiday special, where we'll be talking about classic Christmas films and what they can tell us about 20th century American culture and politics with a special focus on main connections. That's next time on Mainly History. Thank you.